after the sermon, let's respond by singing hymn 79. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is a map good for? If you're out in the beauty of creation, hiking on some trails through the forests and through the mountains, you're looking around you and you're drinking it all in and you're enjoying yourself. Why do you need a map? Why, why stop looking at the real thing to look at a representation of the real thing? Well, those of you who like getting out and exploring new places, I think you can appreciate that a map can be very useful. A map, for instance, can show us the big picture. We're just hiking up a mountain. We have no idea, for instance, maybe how this mountain is connected to other mountains. Or if we're walking along a little stream, we have no idea how that connects to a larger body of water and to some lakes and maybe a waterfall down there. The map gives us the big picture. And it can help us plan where we're going to be walking. And sometimes a map tells us about treasures that we would never see. You may just walk right by this cave, which has wonderful treasures, maybe some ancient cave drawings or whatever. Just walk right by it. But if we got the map, it says, hey, if you're in this area, take a look. There are some really neat things in this cave. The catechism is kind of like that. It's kind of like a map to Scripture. Scripture is the real thing. Scripture is where we, where we spend our time. The map is just a representation. It's not the real thing. The catechism is not the Word of God. But what the catechism does is it helps us to stand back and see all the glorious themes of Scripture. As we preach in the mornings on certain texts, we're focusing on certain parts of the Scripture and digging into them and learning what the Lord is teaching us. But in the Catechism Sermons, we, we pull back and we try to look at the big picture. We see these huge themes that come throughout the Scriptures, themes of, of redemption, of, of faith, and, and of the, the characteristics and attributes of God. And so we, we study the Scriptures more topically in the Catechism Sermons. But we're still dealing with what the Bible teaches. And so we come to Lord's Day 25 this afternoon. And Lord's Day 25 mentions faith again. We've been talking in the Catechism for a very, very long time about faith. If you cast your mind back to the first time when we started talking about faith many weeks ago, that was back in Lord's Day 7. In Lord's Day 7, we had the definition of faith. Lord's Days 8 through to 22 discuss the content of faith. Lord's Day 23 explained to us the benefit of faith. Lord's Day 24 reminded us of the exclusiveness of faith. And now in Lord's Day 25, the Catechism is talking about faith again. Up to now, the Catechism has made it very clear that the Bible teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now the next question that the Catechism asks is kind of strange. It says, where does this faith come from? Isn't that kind of strange? I mean, the Catechism has spent a long time, many weeks, 
Reminding us of what the Bible teaches. Christ has paid for your sins. God grants you forgiveness and righteousness and everlasting life for free out of grace. All you have to do is believe. When you believe in Christ, all these things belong to you. So that's all you need to do. Why does the Catechism ask, where does this belief come from? Where does this faith come from? Isn't it obvious? Doesn't it come from us? Isn't this at last the one part of the process where we get to do something, where we get to contribute a little bit? Well, the question the Catechism asks is not strange if you know your Bible. Because the Bible teaches that we by nature are children of wrath, dead in our sins. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, you can offer someone who is dead all the riches in the world, all the promises in the world, but the announcement would fall on deaf ears. And that's how radical our situation is by nature. We are totally incapable as fallen sinners of reaching forth a hand to take hold of all the blessings that God offers us in Christ. Because by nature, we are in a state of spiritual death. What is more, not only are we incapable of accepting the promises, we also don't want to. A fallen sinner has no desire for God. Remember Adam and Eve after the fall? When they heard the sound of the Lord in the garden, they ran the other way. That's the only reaction a sinner can have before a holy God. Now, the message of the cross, says Paul to the Corinthians, is foolishness to those who are perishing. The natural person, he says to the Corinthians again, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's our problem as sinners. Now you understand why the question of Laws 25 is not so strange after all. It's vitally important. If the only way to be saved is to be in Christ. If the only way to be in Christ is, this, is I'm engrafted into him by faith, then I need to know where do I get that faith? Because faith is a treasure. Faith is the difference between life and death. Faith is the difference between heaven and hell, eternal joy, everlasting punishment. Where can I get this faith? And the answer from Scripture is that it's a gift. It's grace. Paul writes to the Ephesians, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. And specifically, a gift from God, the Holy Spirit. He works it in our hearts. He works it in our hearts. Let's stop there for a moment. This is no normal gift. It's actually a miracle. What does the Bible teach us about the human heart? Jeremiah chapter 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's God's diagnosis of our condition outside of Christ. And to think that the Holy Spirit takes such a heart, the heart of a person who is dead in sin, who by nature is God's enemy, a person whose heart is deceitful above all things, 
The last thing he wants is fellowship with God. The last thing he thinks he needs is salvation. The Spirit takes such a heart and graciously works new life. He replaces a heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and he makes this heart open and receptive to the words of the gospel. Takes those who are dead in sin, makes them alive in Christ. They have new life. They're born again. We confess in the canons of Dort that this is just as amazing as creating something out of nothing. Just as amazing as the work of creation. is the work of regeneration, raising a dead person to life. It's kind of what's happening when the Holy Spirit changes a dead heart into a heart which is regenerated. It's an amazing work, and it needs an amazing power. It's the incredible, powerful work of the Holy Spirit, and we need to be in awe of that work, and we need to praise Him for it. This teaches us humility. If we understand what God the Holy Spirit has done to our hearts, He's worked that miracle in our hearts, and it behooves us, it becomes us to be humble. You know what the Apostle Paul says to the church? He says, what do you have which you have not received? If we believe in Christ, we need to be aware this is by the grace of God. It's because the Spirit of Jesus Christ came to me in the Word, and he, he worked the gift of faith in my heart. So there's no such thing as a proud Christian. There's no, there's no, there's no one in the kingdom of heaven who is so smart and so intelligent as to consider all the options and then choose in his own wisdom, own intelligence, own strength, I'm going to choose Jesus. I'm going, to, I'm going to choose to believe in Christ. That's not how it works. God's kingdom, on the contrary, is full of people who say, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring me home. So humility. Secondly, it teaches us the importance of prayer. But lover, there's no recipe for bringing people to faith. There's no 10-step marketing plan to turn people into new believers. If we're witnessing to people in our neighborhood, at work, at school, if we're involved in outreach, if we as a church are involved in mission, either far away or close by, we need to make prayer a cornerstone of our evangelism. We need to pray for our neighbors, for our family who aren't believers, for our co-workers. We need to pray for people who hear the gospel through outreach or mission. We need to pray for the Spirit of Jesus Christ to work in their hearts that wonder of wonder, that miracle of miracles. But we need to pray for our children too. There's no recipe. There's no recipe for bringing up covenant children. It's not an automatic logical progression from Christian school to catechism to graduating from grade 12 to doing profession of faith. No, it's not the way it works. Our children are conceived and born in sin. What does the baptism form say? They also cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. That's regeneration. That's getting a new heart. 
Who does that? Not some system. Not 12 years of Christian education. That's the Spirit. And so we need to pray regularly that God would work and strengthen faith in their hearts. We need to make prayer a cornerstone of our parenting. We need to pray that God would use the Christian aroma of our homes, that he would use our instruction, our admonition, that he would bless the Christian education and the catechism teaching and the Bible studies and the weekly preaching of the word in such a way that our children might more and more respond in faith and that one day, God be praised, they may stand up in front of the church, in front of the congregation and say loud and clear, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I respond to his promises in my baptism. I love him. I worship him. And I want to live for him now and forever. That is not an automatic thing. Every time it happens, it's a glorious miracle of God's grace. There are many that can testify to that, that it's not automatic. You can give your child every benefit of covenant education, a Christian home, an upbringing, and yet you can grieve when you see your child go his or her own way. Sometimes it seems as though nothing went in there, into the head or to the heart. And we can feel helpless as parents when we see our children drifting away from God. We can feel helpless, but we're not helpless. What do we confess every Sunday? Our help is in the name of the Lord. And that name is on their forehead. And we can pray. We can pray to him. It's never wasted time to get on our knees yet again and intercede for our children and pray that God would graciously give the gift of repentance and faith. Baptism. is what some of the old writers call a pleading ground. We can say, Lord, look at my son, look at my daughter. You put your name on on his head. And for the sake of your name, call my child back to the way. He's a God who works miracles. Well, we know where faith comes from. The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts. But how? Well, we confess that the Bible teaches that he works it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and strengthens it by the use of the sacraments. Now, that's pretty radical. The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. Really? We're living in a time when the preaching of the gospel is under a lot of stress. We're living in a time when people expect all kinds of fireworks and neat sound effects and visual effects. To take 30, 40 minutes of a worship service to hear just one person talking is perhaps not the greatest way to attract new people to the church. Wouldn't we be better if we did some exciting stuff? We got a good band, lots of percussion, upbeat music, lights, video, multimedia, a bit of mime, a few skits, some theater, get people interested, get people entertained, have some good coffee at the back. Keep people coming back. Draw them in. A lot of churches, in all sincerity, have gone down that road. It doesn't work. The church that tries to entertain fails to be a church. You see, the church has a job to do. 
And that job is to preach. Christ told the office bearers of the New Testament church, go into all the world and preach my gospel to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God in his infinite wisdom has decided that this is the way by what Scripture calls the foolishness of preaching, he will call people to faith. See, the Holy Spirit uses beans. He doesn't just convert people at random. It's not like somebody's walking along the road, dead in sin, all of a sudden, boom! They're suddenly a devout believer. God doesn't work that way normally. God uses very ordinary things to work in someone's heart and life. He uses the influence and instruction of parents and teachers and friends. He uses the blessing of a godly home and upbringing, Christian education. But most importantly, the main means of grace that God uses is the preaching of the gospel. He uses something incredibly simple. One man explaining and teaching scripture, and he uses that very down-to-earth scene to work one of the greatest miracles in the universe. He uses the preaching of the gospel to work faith. What does James say in chapter 1, verse 18? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. We were born by the word of truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, you have been born again. How? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. It shouldn't surprise us that the Holy Spirit works in and through the Word. He's the one that has inspired every text in the Bible in the first place. He's the one of whom Christ said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. That's a promise to the apostles. And so when they were writing the epistles... And when they were writing the books of the New Testament, it was the Holy Spirit who was reminding them what Jesus had taught. And that's what he did. The Holy Spirit didn't draw attention to himself. The Holy Spirit points to Jesus, reminds the apostles in the church of what Jesus said and taught. And at Pentecost, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happened? What was the consequence when they were filled with the Holy Spirit? There in Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Did they swing from the chandeliers? No. The Bible says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't just act in the speaker, he also acts in the listener. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, you receive the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as a result, your faith in God has become known around the world. Sunday after Sunday, he, the Spirit, takes these words of Scripture, these words of Christ, these words about Christ. He brings them close to us through the preaching of the gospel. He causes that word to penetrate into our hearts and lives. And that word is the power of God for salvation because the Holy Spirit of the Almighty God is using it to work in you, to work faith, and to strengthen faith in your heart. And if we understand that, we understand why sometimes the church is called the workshop of the Holy Spirit. Church has been charged to preach the word. The Spirit works through the preaching to work the miracle of faith. That means if you want to see the Spirit at work, this is the place to be. That means that if we're not faithful in the use of the means of grace, the preaching, the sacraments, 
if we're not diligent to place ourselves under the preaching of the word, then we're not keeping in step with the Spirit. In fact, we're quenching Him. And there can be serious consequences to that. And one of the things that I've noticed in my pastoral work over the years is that when somebody's struggling spiritually, one of the very first things that the devil incites them to do is to stop coming to public worship just when they most need it. The devil knows what's good for us. And he tries to fool us into thinking that we need to stay away. What about our children? We need to encourage our children to be in corporate worship as soon as possible. The age varies from child to child, from family to family. But the principle should be kept in mind. The church is the workshop of the Holy Spirit. And the sooner that your child sits under the preaching of the word of life and all that comes with it, the sooner your child experiences all of this, the better. Sometimes for the very young ones, we can summarize the sermon in just a few short sentences at home. But don't underestimate the power of the Spirit. He also applies the most amazing things to the hearts, even of the very little ones. You'd be surprised sometimes what he lays on their hearts, what they pick up. And we can help prepare their hearts to be fertile soil for the gospel by showing a joy in going up to worship, by speaking of the importance of worship and preaching to our children, and by explaining to them that the miracle, explaining to them the miracle that the Spirit works through the preaching of the gospel. And finally, this has implications for our liturgy and for our worship. The only way to share in Christ and all his benefits is to have faith. And if faith comes from the Holy Spirit, who works it in our hearts through the gospel, then the church has to be very insistent that the preaching of the gospel is the main element of worship. If we cut back on preaching, if preaching gets hidden behind all kinds of innovations, then the church can stop being a workplace of the Spirit and becomes a place to socialize or to show off your talents or to entertain or to be entertained. It's very important. We live in a time when intense pressure is being, being brought to bear on the Reformed worship service. We need to understand, remind each other, that God has not ordained faith to come through skits or testimonies or praise choruses or children's stories or mimes or the minister sitting on the front step with a little brown paper bag and saying, what do you think's inside here? That's not what the Bible says. We read it, Romans chapter 10. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And as long as the word of Christ is central in our lives and our worship, then we will keep on seeing that most amazing miracle. We will continue to see our little children grow up and miracle of miracles respond in faith to the gospel that has nurtured them all their lives. And we will see others who, miracle of miracles, are drawn to Christ and come to faith because God draws them in from outside the covenant and blesses them by working faith in their hearts as they sit under the preaching of the word. In other words, as long as the word of Christ is central in our lives and our worship, we will see the Holy Spirit work wonders amongst us. Not the wonders of gold fillings in our teeth or the wonders of people laughing hysterically in the spirit 
but rather the wonders of which the scriptures speak, the wonders of faith and hope and love, humility, communion, fellowship in the spirit, grace, repentance, and most of all, love. Now we've seen where faith comes from, from the Holy Spirit. We've seen how the Spirit works faith. He mainly uses the preaching of the the word. But there's another means that the Holy Spirit uses to strengthen faith, and these are the sacraments. Now, if you know your catechism, you know that the catechism is going to deal pretty in pretty detailed way with the sacraments in the next Lord's days. So we're not going to go into the details now. But we want to just concentrate on one thing right now. How does the Holy Spirit use the sacraments to strengthen faith? Well, let's know what the catechism confesses from the scripture. Number one, the sacraments are holy. That means God sets them apart. He takes something which is very normal, washing with water, drinking some wine, eating some bread, and he sanctifies it. He makes it holy. He sets it apart to make a special point. Number two, the sacraments are visible. God knows that we humans delight in the visual. We like to have concrete examples. If it was up to us, we would much rather walk by sight rather than by faith. We're all a little bit like Thomas. And God knows our weakness. And so he has given us two visible signs, things that we can see, things that we can even touch and taste and smell and chew. And using these things, these visible signs, God wants to drive home to us the truth of the gospel preached. Thirdly, the sacraments are signs. A sign is not important in itself. If you're driving along the highway and the sign says Edmonton, you don't say, hooray, I'm in Edmonton. It's pointing to the real thing. The sign is just a representation. So the sacraments in themselves are quite unimpressive. Some water on a baby's head, some sips of wine, a little bit of bread eaten. But God takes these simple, normal, everyday things. He makes them into a sign which points to a glorious reality. He makes that little bit of water point to the incredible truth that God's blood washes us clean from our sins and makes us pure. He makes that poured wine and that broken bread point to the glorious truth that Christ's blood was poured out. Christ's body was broken for us and for our salvation. And fourthly, the sacraments are seals. As soon as you get a legal document, I don't know about here in Canada, but I know in Brazil, the more seals, the more important the document is. If it's really authentic, it'll at least have one huge wax seal on it. This is genuine. This is true. That's what the seal says. That's what the sacraments do to the gospel. The word of God proclaims, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God will wash away your sins. The sacrament says, that's true. Look, water washes away dirt. That's how Christ's blood washes away your sin. Do you see it? The word of God proclaims Christ died for you. Your sins are paid in full. You are reconciled to the Father. The sacrament says, that's true. You taste it. Taste the wine. You're chewing the bread. You're sitting at table, the Lord's table. As real as this bread is, as real as this wine is, so surely did you die with Christ to sin and you were raised with him to newness of life. The Catechism reminds us 
that Christ is the focus here. Christ is the center, not just of the word preached, but also of the sacraments. The faith that the Holy Spirit works in us is faith in Christ. And so the means of grace that the Holy Spirit uses point to him. If the sermons turn into exegesis lectures or lectures on how to raise children or how to manage money or whether to vote liberal or NDP, then the preaching has lost its focus and has ceased to be a means of grace. Preaching, to be preaching, must be the preaching of Christ. It's the same with the sacraments. If our attention in the sacraments is turned away from the water, wine, and bread, and instead we we turn them into social occasions, we just use them out of habit, out of custom, out of superstition, because we're expected to. Or if we use the sacraments or abstain from using them in order to make a statement, then we're guilty of misusing and desecrating what God has made holy. It's only when the sacraments are used in faith that they are used by the Holy Spirit to strengthen and to confirm faith. And we end with that question answer 68, and we wonder why it's there. The Holy Spirit uses sacraments to strengthen and confirm our faith. That's why Christ instituted them. But why does the Catechism make a point of saying that there are two sacraments? Well, because the Lord Jesus only instituted two sacraments. That's what we confess. That's what Scripture teaches. The Roman church has seven. And we may think, well, okay, that was a discussion that happened about half a millennium ago. Do we still have to keep confessing and talking about it? Well, people haven't changed, brothers and sisters. Human nature hasn't changed. People still love to add things to God's Word. And one of the ways that we're adding to it, in our days too, is on insisting on more signs than Christ has instituted. Happened back in the time of the Reformation, still happening today. There are many churches around the world where you're not a real Christian unless you speak in tongues. That's an extra sign. It's not what Christ instituted. It's one that the church has added, just like the Roman church did. So many churches today add extra signs. A few decades ago, there was this craze that swept through the, the Christian world, the Toronto blessing, and the basic idea was that uh, God was only working in the congregation if people would get slain in the Spirit. That's a sign that God's there. People fall down the Spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. So let's stick to what the Lord Jesus has instituted and commanded. Go and preach and baptize, he said. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. God has given us the word. God has given us the signs and seals of this word and the holy sacraments. Both word and sacraments, when administered faithfully, are sure signs that God is surely at work among us. When the word and the sacraments point to Christ and to him alone, then miracles happen. Then miracles will keep happening in this church. The miracle of faith. And repentance worked in the heart. The miracle of faith in Christ confirmed and strengthened week after week. The miracle of those who by nature are dead, dead in sin, being made alive in Christ and being united with him more and more through the work of God the Holy Spirit. God says it. God shows it. 
So we need to listen and look and believe. Amen.